And uh, it's a really significant book uh, in the uh, New Testament, and uh, we're going to get a chance to walk through that together. So let's begin. I'm calling it a first look. And I'm, I pulled this verse out of uh, 1 Thessalonians. It's in chapter 2, 13, so you can open your Bibles there uh, if you want to track along with me. But it says, Paul saying this, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as the wor- not as the word of men, but at, for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul pointed out something really significant as they came rumbling through and stopped in this town. He said, we threw out a message to you, and when we did, you didn't just take it as a word from man, but you took it for what it really was, a living word from God. And we're going to talk about how revolutionary uh, this all is. You know, on first blush, when you read that, well, we'd say absolutely, right? I mean, that's the Apostle Paul, and that's ex- exactly what you'd expect him to write. After all, he was the greatest missionary the world had ever seen. What else would you expect him to say? Now, just pause for a minute. Part of the problem when we come to the Bible, and I've tried to coach us in this a lot, is that we treat all of this stuff as such, it's such done stuff. In other words, Paul was the apostle. He had a word from God. He just marched through the world, repent, and everybody repented, and he planted all these churches and just went. That's not how it worked. This was, this was brand new even for Paul when he wrote this. And so um, that's, many uh, Bible scholars, when you look at 1 Thessalonians, think that that's the first book that was written. Some will argue that it was Galatians, but most consider 1 Thessalonians the, the first book. So when we look at 1 Thessalonians, what we have to realize in terms of even some of the Gospels, this was... The first look. You know when you go to the movie theaters, right? And if you go early, like I, Pam and I usually like to go early and get a big bucket of popcorn and watch all the previews and stuff. And uh, they, they say first look, right? And it, it gives you a synopsis of the things that are coming up, the things that are going to roll out next couple months. Some of them, you go, oh, that looks interesting. And some of you go, ooh, you know, and kind of deal. And, uh, but it gives you that kind of first look picture of, of what's coming up. First Thessalonians is that first look. All the other books that flow out of it, uh, all the New Testament as we know it, uh, you look at Romans and all that stuff, all the, the seed thoughts for that come out of 1 Thessalonians. So when you're looking at 1 Thessalonians, you're looking at the first look. Paul's first shot at trying to articulate what's been perking in his head and soul uh, these years as he has gotten called by the Lord and then um, called into ministry. And so I, I think that's really significant. So let's pray. Let's God, ask God to engage us with this, and then we'll move through the message this morning. Father, uh, when we come to this, it, I really was caught by that first look idea and the idea that uh, this book sets the table for everything else that was written in the New Testament. And, and that just uh, seems to me to be vitally important. It seems to be a way to capture all the other stuff that rolls out comes out of this pivot point. And therefore we should pay close attention to it because it's Paul's first thoughts. And the idea, Lord, that Paul's first thoughts 2,000 years ago could be relevant to us today is just amazing. You are the living God. You translate that stuff. So as we go through this series, as we go through the first book you really orchestrated by your spirit through Paul, 
May it speak to us in a living way here in 215. We seek you for that. We ask for your favor in that. Have conversations with us while we're together. Have conversations during the week. Um, We seek you for uh, a living engagement with you as we go through it. And we ask for this favor in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, let's do, what I want to do is, uh, today will be mostly background, all right? I want to set the book up. I don't want to just roll through it. I want to give you the context and some of the things behind how this rolled out so that you have uh, a look at it. And so if you look at the uh, greeting there, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That's what we're going to cover this morning. Those three lines. All right? So we're going to really rock and roll through this whole thing. Let's start with there. The first three gives us three names. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So let's look at those, those guys and just make sure we know who, we, who they are. So Paul, pretty famous guy. Did you know his name means little? All right? Isn't that interesting? The name Paul means little. And uh, so Paul, that doesn't fit for you. Okay? Big. Okay? Paul means little. All right? Um, but uh, when, we're, when we're looking at uh, the Apostle Paul, he started out, when he first started, he was a fierce opponent of the church. Uh, you can look in the book of Acts for that and find out, but he was at the stoning of Stephen uh, when they stoned Stephen as one of the deacons in the early church. And uh, he was uh, breathing death threats. Uh, many Bible scholars believe that not only was he guilty of throwing families into prison, but probably guilty of murder himself in the process. So we're talking about somebody who was violently opposed uh, to the church. Then in the process, he meets the resurrected Christ. You can look in Acts again, the story. He's on his way to Damascus. He's got letters to persecute the church there. He wanted to stop the spread of Christianity. And uh, literally was knocked off his horse or donkey, whatever he was riding, and uh, saw a blinding light. And said, uh, the light said to him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And then Jesus also added, it's hard to kick against the goads, i.e. Jesus was a pointy stick to him, and the harder he kicked, the worse it hurt. And so Paul is then uh, blinded, brought into the city. Ananias is told to go pray for him. Ananias says, hey, Jesus, you know who this guy is you're talking about here? And yes, I do, and he's going to serve me, and I'm going to show him what it costs him in terms of suffering for my, for my church. And so obviously you can see that this is a very, very specific, singular work of Christ in an enemy. And, and one of the things I say about this that uh, really gives me hope for today is that Jesus has an amazing way of turning his worst enemies into his best friends. Okay? And may we pray that that's true in our day as well. Because this guy was adamantly, adamantly opposed. Uh, After that, it gets really interesting for Paul. Nobody really knows all of what happens, but he goes into seclusion. And uh, he goes back, basically, looks through what we would call the Old Testament and starts to discover all this evidence for a suffering Messiah and all this evidence of uh, God's laying out the track in the Old Testament and realizes that the whole Old Testament talked about Jesus long before he ever showed up. So Paul gets all lit up with this stuff. Not only uh, does he get lit up with that, 
But then it also says, uh, and you can track this with Paul, where he says, uh, he talks about a man who was caught up into the third heaven. It's an autobiographical reference. And says that he saw visions of things that men are not allowed to talk about. And so you can imagine, have you ever had something that you know that other people around you don't? And have you ever tried to hold that? Isn't that a booger? Right? Oh, I just want to tell somebody. Right? You just kind of... And, and Paul had things that the Lord specifically and expressly forbid him to share with other people. So he always feels like a caged tiger trying to get out when he's talking or preaching or writing letters because he can only give so much. He can't give it all. And he's trying to tell people, he's trying to take what he's seen and translate it for people who have no understanding. And it's incredibly difficult. Right? Uh, I don't know about you, but when I get to that place, I just want to yell at people. Why can't you? Right? You know, and uh, I found that spiritual things are very similar to, have you ever played the game 20 questions or a riddle game? Right? And when you don't know the answer to it, the other person sits there with glee on their face, right? And you have to try and ask questions and try and solve this riddle. Right? And, um, And it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. There's no answer to this. It's impossible. Till they tell you the answer to the riddle. Then you're like, oh, man. Right? And then it's so easy. Then what do you want to do? Turn around and do it to somebody else and watch them struggle. Right? And this is kind of like that in that Paul knows the answer, has seen the risen Christ, has been instructed by the risen, and has been sent on mission by the risen Christ. But he's trying to translate it for people who don't know how to ask the questions. So if, if you struggle with that in today's culture, be blessed, be at ease. Paul struggled with it too, all right? This isn't all done. This isn't all over. Paul wasn't just this brilliant genius, although he was a genius. He wasn't just this, hey, I'll write a letter and it's going to lead millions to Christ. I just know it. He's wrestling with everyday uh, stuff that you and I wrestle with. And so I think that's, that's kind of cool. On the way... Uh, Barnabas, who is a significant uh, person in the New Testament, uh, sees the value in Paul. A lot of people didn't see the value. A lot of people were scared of him. A lot of people weren't sure it was a genuine conversion. How do we know he's not just using that to later bushwhack us? But Barnabas had kind of a trusting heart. And so Barnabas scoops Paul up, takes him with him to Antioch. And uh, in the church there, they are um, serving and ministering together. And then we read in Acts that... uh, the Holy Spirit sets Paul and Barnabas apart for the first missionary journey. And so Paul and Barnabas launch out and go on the first missionary journey. Uh, and the first, the first journey that they took, uh, most people think it's right about 45 A.D. So if you think about Jesus' life and you think about the timing, this is less than 15 years removed from the cross and the resurrection. Right? So we're talking really close. Right? A lot of stuff has happened in between but it's really close to the event. If we go on a little farther and continue in this, um, Paul and Barnabas, uh, after in the middle of the first missionary journey, John Mark is with them, and he'll come up later. John Mark disappears, abandons them, doesn't like the missionary life, thinks it's too difficult, so he bolts. And then as a result, when they come to now this second missionary trip, of which they will go to Thessalonica, 
Paul and Barnabas have a huge disagreement over whether they should take John Mark along with them again. Barnabas says, no, no, look, he's a good guy. He'll work out. You know, look, that was his first trip and he kind of biffed it. We can bring him. Paul goes, no, right? Paul's a little stiffer than Barnabas. Barnabas got the more flexible heart. Paul's more on task and mission and what it's going to take to accomplish. Uh, Neither can figure out who's right. So Barnabas goes one way with John Mark. Paul goes the other way. And then he grabs uh, this guy named Silas. So let's look at Silas in um, 1 Thessalonians here. It's Silvanus. And you can see that right there in the beginning. So here's the interesting part. Paul, when he addresses uh, Silas, he always calls him Silvanus. So when Paul writes about Silvanus, when Luke writes about him, and Luke wrote a lot of the New Testament as well, Luke always calls him Silas, right? So it's kind of um, like Steve or Stephen or Susie or Susan, or it's, you know, there's a Roman and a Greek name and one's this, one's that. So he's either known as Silas or Silvanus. He's a Jew by birth, uh, a gifted prophet, and he's highly esteemed among the Jerusalem Christians. So he's one of the guys that came out of that first whole blast of when Peter spoke and 3,000 came to Christ and the church erupted. And there were all these people. Silas is one of the guys that came out of that whole thing. And so he winds up uh, going with Paul and um, uh, heading that way. He was uh, more of a progressive person, more Hellenistic, um, more, maybe the best way to put it, more... uh, able to communicate with non-believers, right? The Gentiles. And so he was a, a, a perfect pick for Paul because Paul was now going to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And so uh, a really strict Jewish person would be much stiffer than a, a new believer who had a Jewish background but was more Hellenistic in view. And so Silas was that guy. He was kind of a hybrid. And uh, he was the, the go-between on that sort of deal. Um, Silas... Uh, the expositors, by the way, everything I'm pulling from here comes out of the expositors Bible commentary. I don't want you to think I'm so brilliant. All right. I, I pulled pieces of it together, but that's where it comes from. And what the expositors Bible commentary says is that Silas uh, endured a bunch of persecutions with Paul and was known for his absolute reliability and his faithfulness in risking his life in service of Christ. This is a guy who was all out. And this is a guy who laid it on the line several times. And we'll get a chance this morning just to look at that. Um, after the missions trip, this second missionary journey, there were three main uh, missionary journeys, four, some people think, when Paul went into Spain, but the first three. In the second one, after this event in First Thessalonians and Corinth, uh, Silas disappears from the record. There's no more mention of him in connection with Paul, but there is another significant mention of him. He becomes associated with Peter, and the writing of First Peter. He was Peter's amnuasis, who dictated, Peter dictated, and Silas wrote it down. And it's very interesting. Someone else is connected later in the New Testament with Peter as well. And you know what his name was? John Mark. Right? John Mark, who originally abandoned, wouldn't go with Paul. Paul later takes him back in and says, bring John Mark with me. He's useful to me. And then John Mark ends up with Peter, and he coins... Uh, Peter's gospel, which we now know as the gospel of Mark, right? So some amazing stories through here, how it all weaves and who's connected to who and how it all wound up. Now, when we come to Timothy, 
Timothy is interesting because uh, Timothy was a disciple that Paul and Silas uh, became aware of when they were going on this trip, and they were going through what we would call today Central Turkey, right? Uh, but the towns of Lystra and Derby, uh, Central Turkey, and they became aware of him, and uh, he was a, a disciple that was held in high esteem by the communities there. He joined Paul on the second missionary journey, and he was a valuable member of the ministry team. Matter of fact, just past Thessalonians, the next two books are First and Second Timothy, and they're written to Timothy because he becomes one of the major pastoral leaders uh, in the New Testament, and he is one that Paul took under his wing, and Paul really became a father to him. And uh, Timothy uh, was placed in several different churches and in charge of putting them together and uh, building them up. All right, so there's the three guys. So these three guys are on the second missionary journey, what we know in the New Testament, and they are rolling uh, through what we would call today Central Turkey. And um, if we come and look, here's a map. You can kind of see, I want to give you the geography of it. So you can see Troas there. Lister and Derby would be to your right in Central Turkey. And when Paul was coming through, he wanted to go down to Ephesus, would have been south, or Bithynia, which would have been north. But the Holy Spirit kind of squeezed him and said, no, you can't go south, you can't go north, head this way. And he ended up at Troas, which is right on the water, as you can see there. And this is where Paul got the vision of the man from Macedonia. Macedonia is what we'd understand today as modern-day Greece. So there's a man on the other side of the water in his vision, calling out, saying, hey, come over here, help us. So Paul says, hey, I think maybe we should go across the water. And that's what they do. They start heading across the water. Paul is trying to revisit originally the churches from his first trip. And so they cross over to Greece, and then they wind up in Philippi. In Philippi, Paul starts a church, and if you know the story, things don't go very well. They are thrown in jail, and before... Uh, they're actually placed in the cell. They are flogged. So Paul and Silas are, are whipped, 40 lashes. So their backs are all ripped up. Right? Just imagine if you were whipped like that. And remember when they whipped people like that, they had little chunks of bone and nail and stuff like that. So it just tore you up. And so they were whipped in Philippi. This is where they are singing in the jail at midnight after they've been whipped. When's the last time you did that? All right. But it's a tremendous lesson. Even in our worst times, we should sing praise to the Lord. And we always sing those songs, hey, I'll bless you in the good times, I'll bless you in the dry. But a lot of times we bless the Lord in the good times and complain in the dry. And there's a real art to learning to bless the Lord with worship when you're in the hard times. And if that's a, a word for you this morning, take it as such. All right? But they're in the jail and they are uh, being whipped and then they are singing there's an earthquake that happens all the jail cells go open the jailer thinks they've escaped so he's about to kill himself and paul cries out and says no no we're fine we're all still sitting here jailer's astonished why would prisoners not flee and so they come out and the jailer and his whole family come to know christ and then paul and silas uh head and they go and you can see from philippi to thessalonica is about 50 miles Right? Now put this in context. They're off in the Spirit of God. Here we go. Thessalonica. Right? No, they just got whipped. 
You ever tried walking 50 miles when you're healthy? Right? Have you ever tried it when you've been whipped? Can you imagine, you know, your shirt sticking to your back, it's bleeding, you try to peel it off, it reopens it up. How do you sleep if you've been whipped on your back? This is not a casual saunt in the glory of the Holy This is a miserable, determined jog because Christ told you to. And they have joy in the midst of it. And there's ex- they're in excruciating pain. And they walk 50 miles. Are you getting the context here? It's not a done deal. Just like your thing, my thing isn't a done deal. It's happening as they do it. God leads them and says, hey, head to Thessalonica. Now you would say, okay, well, when we get to Thessalonica, things will get better. Not so much. All right? Go, if you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Acts. And uh, go to chapter 17. Let's pick this up where the story picks up in Acts. And by the way, you'll be able to do this throughout the book of Thessalonians as uh, it plays out. But um, I'm going to start with verse 1, chapter 17. And let's just read the story. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. Paul's natural pattern was to find a synagogue and start teaching there. Almost always he got kicked out after a week or two, and then he would go start a ministry to the Gentiles somewhere else. It says, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he was planting a church. Just like at one point Northview was planted. And what's the message of Norfew? The same message that Paul gave here at Thessalonica. That this Jesus who suffered for us, who died on the cross for us and rose from the dead, this Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is who we have to put our faith in and our hope in. That is the message of Thessalonica. That is the message of Norfew. And if you don't know the Lord, he is somebody that you need to know. He is someone that you have to come to a place of dealing with, usually because there's always an authority issue involved with it, because we love the idea God loves us. We just don't like the idea God has the right to tell us what to do. And so we get all hooked up on the control thing. And we are very resistant, even though most of the time we're passive aggressive on that. But we're very resistant. But Jesus is someone that we have to deal with. And you've got to get past that because salvation is in Jesus. When you get to heaven, it will not be what did you do or what were your brownie points or how many things did you achieve or that kind of stuff. It won't even be how much did you sin. It will be Jesus looking at you and looking saying, did you place your faith in me? And he will know. It won't matter what other people thought. It won't matter uh, even really at that point what you thought. It will matter what he knows. And he will know if he knows us. Now here's the good thing. The Bible says you can ask Christ into your life and God will give you his Holy Spirit and then your whole, his Holy Spirit becomes the witness in your heart that that transaction's been made and you know. Uh, it's a pretty mysterious thing in some ways. It's pretty practical in others. Pretty mysterious in that I could tell you, uh, I remember when I asked Christ into my life, uh, nothing happened. Two and a half years later, I, I came to Christ in a crash um, thunder, boom, lightning conversion story in a powdered milk factory at 3 in the morning. 
got the chance to tell that story out of camp this week. It was really fun. And uh, I can't tell you really what the difference was. All I can tell you is one minute I didn't know Jesus, the next minute I knew Jesus. At three in the morning, that powder milk flying all around, I knew the resurrected Christ was standing there right there with me. And the trajectory of my life radically changed from that moment on. It was an incredible deal. And I stand before you today, not as someone who's a self-made man, but someone who was called into ministry by Jesus Christ, very much like Paul, never knew what a pastor was, never really wanted to be a pastor, and have been a pastor for 35 years because of what Jesus did in my life. Right? Isn't that amazing? Incredible story. What's your story? What's your story? Do you have one? You can, if you ask Jesus into your life, you can have that kind of story. All right? It doesn't have to be like mine. It can be very different. It can be much quieter. Bless you if it is. All right? But um, it's a story of the Holy Spirit nonetheless. That's important. All right, let's go on. This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Some actually believed it. And they joined Paul and Silas as a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These these are the men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king i.e., how dare they? Another king, and this king's name is Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken, taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So what you find is they went from Philippi, got whipped and jailed in Philippi, went to Thessalonica. They preached for three weeks, three Sabbaths. Three weeks, an uproar, we would say all hell broke loose, which it did, and an uproar in the city. Now understand, Thessalonica to this day is a real city. You can go there right now, today. It's about uh, 400,000 people today, but it was a city, it's been a city for over 2,500 years. Can you imagine that? And we think we're big stuff with 350 in America. You know, 2,500 years it's been a city. And it was a major city. It was a major port city. As you can see, it sits right on the water. There's a river there, so it had river access. One of the major roads, Roman roads, went right through there, and it was considered one of the royal cities. It was the hub of that area. And so when we say a riot broke out in that city, we're not talking about a little town like Mill Creek and a riot broke out. You know, 50 people walked down the street. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this whole thing went upside down, and to the point where they were terrified for Paul and Silas's life. And, and so what they did was they shipped at night, Paul and Silas out of town and said, get out of here. And they sent them down by boat or uh, over to Berea. And then later, Paul takes boat by the water there. You can see the water. And he comes around to Corinth. At Corinth, uh, he's there. He goes to Athens first. And then he goes to Corinth. Timothy and Silas come down. That's about 100 miles from Berea to Corinth, right? And so he comes down from Berea down to Corinth. 
And it's there in Corinth. Paul's there for 18 months. That's where he writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. So this book, rather than sitting in you know, a study somewhere, I, I'm a biblical scholar. I will write a work for God. Right? That's not how it happened. How did this happen? It happened while they were on the hoof. This happened while they were on the move. This happened while they were doing a bunch of other stuff. And Paul writes the book because he's really concerned about what happened in Thessalonica. Is there even anything left? Remember, they don't have Instagram. They don't have Facebook. They don't have cell phones. They don't have comp- They don't have telephones. Okay? They have horses. Giddy up. Right? Or you walk. And the mail, how fast does mail move that way? Not very fast. And so Paul's down in Corinth has no idea what has happened up in Thessalonica. He, he, he's not sure at all. When Silas and Timothy come down and talk to him, he finally gets a report, and much to his great relief, he realizes they've survived. They, uh, there's still a church there. They've survived. Uh, they're actually flourishing. And the Word of God has taken root. And so Paul is uh, really excited and um, and in this context, I should keep up with my notes because I'm tracking there. So in this context, then, Paul writes the first epistle, which we know as the book of First Thessalonians. All right, so that's the context uh, behind that. Now, the question this morning for us, I think, is why is this important? Why, does, why was it worth that time to walk through that and to know the background and the setting of of this book and, and Paul. and Again, I, I think it's important because like I said in the beginning, this is Paul's first epistle. And as thus, it gives us a very unique window into Paul's thinking. It's a, like I said, a first look at what would be laid out and rolled and expanded upon in the rest of the New Testament that was written. And so it, um, it sets the bar, so to speak. Uh, and when you look at this, Again, this is from the Expositor's uh, Bible Commentary. When you look at the second phrase then, it says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church word, this ecclesia word, was a word that was used um, in a lot of different ways for assemblies. But here for the very first time, we see written the church, Right? That it was an assembly, it was God's assembly, it was God's people, or an assembly of God's people. And so Paul is writing to the assembly, the church, up in Thessalonica, and the church is unique. It's not been there before. The closest we would relate to it would be the synagogue, right? The Jewish synagogue was the forerunner of it. But this is, we're talking about now the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the church is being formed. Also in this statement, what you, what you can see is that uh, Jesus is given equality with the Father. It says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to make it adamantly clear that Jesus was God. If you go through his writings, it is uh, repeated over and over again. The different ways that Jesus is God. It's repeated over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus is God. And why that's important is because so many people today don't want Jesus to be God. They want him to be a great teacher. They want him to be a prophet. They want him to be a nice guy. They want him to be et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anything but God. Right? There's all kinds of theories now um, uh, of 
uh, like oneness doctrine where uh, there's only one God, that's the Father, and Jesus isn't God. Or there's um, all kinds of uh, ways to reduce Jesus from being God. But Paul was adamant, kind of like he knew why. I met him. Hello? I was caught up into the third heavens. This is not a theory. I saw the dude. I know who he is. He is the resurrected king. He is God. And I want to say this morning, that's so easy for us to gloss over. But why are we gathered here? What would we die for? If you're going to die for anything, the thing you should die for is that Jesus is God. Uh, If you get into persecution, I've thought about it. What would I say? I thought of two things. Number one, you need to know I'm a follower of Christ. Number two, you need to know that Jesus is God. If I were to throw a third one in, the Bible's the word of God. You're going to put me to death for that? That's great. Go ahead. All right? On that, I'll die for. The question this morning is, what would you die for? Paul was willing to die for that little phrase right there. And he showed it by being whipped in Philippi. And he will show it numerous times throughout. This is not just ideas we're throwing out or convenient things or uh, a nice way to live life. What we're talking about here is the adamant proclamation that Jesus Christ is God. All right? period, exclamation point, that he is the living Christ. He is the resurrected Christ. You say, Steve, how do you know that? Well, if you look at these words, uh, Kyrio means Lord is a reference to deity. You often see this, I am the Lord, and that means I am the Lord Almighty. All right? Uh, A prophet is not the Lord Almighty. All right? God is the Lord Almighty. And then also in um, Christo, Christ, uh, we use that Jesus Christ. It's kind of like Steve Mitchell's right name. And uh, Jesus, um, and the, actually the New Testament writers use it that way. But Christo, or, uh, um, or Christo means Christ, actually is the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And that is the Jewish's divine Savior, the divine Messiah who was to come. And so Jesus is a given equality with the Father. Now, still that doesn't capture it though. Nice, good, thanks, Mitch, great information. But, but where's the heart of this? Here's the heart of this. These were not abstract places for Paul. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, these were not just nice things to do. These were his plants. They were his church plants. You know, as a church, we've planted two churches, right? We've planted Implant in Oregon and we've planted Awaken in Florida. And it really matters how they're doing. It really matters because those are our plants, right? It's not somebody else's plants. Those are ours. And if they go up, we rejoice. If they go down, we cry. And Paul's the same way. This, these are his plants. It cost him. It almost cost him his life in Philippi. It almost cost him his life in Thessalonica. It really matters to him. He's shed blood over this thing. These are his plants. And so this is not an academic letter where he's just trying to pontificate something with a bunch of rules so people come in line. He's trying to find out, how are you doing? Are you still in the faith? Are you hanging in there? I'm rejoiced over what Timothy told me. I so hope it's true. Man, you made it. Keep going. And here's some things about keeping going. While I do it down here at Corinth, you keep doing it up at Thessalonica and we'll meet in heaven. That's the tone of it. And if you don't understand that, you just read it kind of academically, that's a huge mistake. That's a huge mistake. Paul's heart's in these books. 
He's writing to people he knows, he's talked to. He only had three weeks in Thessalonica. Think about that. Rumble into town, plant a church, riot breaks out, you get kicked out and shipped out so you don't get killed, and you're hoping it works. Would that work in today's planting world? Wow, think about that. Think about that. That's just crazy. So that's what we're looking at when we say these were Paul's plants. Had they even survived, was there anything left? When he gets the report that they have survived, he's elated. And that's what encourages him to write a letter to him. Why? Because he wanted to encourage him. He was their father in the faith. And like every father, you want to tell your children something, whether they're listening or not, another matter. But as a father, your job as father is to instruct. Your job as father is to pass things along, and you are to pass it along whether they're listening or not. And that's what Paul does as a father. Then he starts the epistle with this. Well, let me get here. Grace to you and peace. What is he saying? That's not just a salutation. Who would know what it was like to walk in the grace of God? Paul, right? Who just got whipped almost to the point of death for his faith? Who got thrown in jail for his faith? Who just got ushered out of town at the express point of death because of his faith? Paul. Who understood grace? Paul. Was it just in the sufferings? No. Paul also understood this. He, he not only deserved all that, but he probably should have got all that even if he didn't know Christ because he, if you read in his letters, he says, I was a violent aggressor against the church. He calls himself the worst of sinners because he understood what he had done. And he understood also, though, equally on the other side, he was an enormous recipient of grace. Compared to what the cost was, it was nothing compared to the debt of love he owed Jesus because Paul had no right to be forgiven whatsoever. I also stand in front of you as a man who has no right to be given forgiven whatsoever. I know many of you would not understand that because you only know Pastor Steve. All right? There's more to that story. What about you? How does grace work for you? Do you know that you shouldn't have been forgiven and by His grace you are? Therefore, when Paul writes, grace to you. Grace. What do we need today? God's grace. We need to walk in His grace. We need to lean into His grace. We need to be saddled by His grace. Because our lives are as just as much tumult as Paul's. You can feel it among us, right? Christmas break is over. What are we doing? Right? Oh, again? And is your world picture perfect and easy? Do you just float through life? Read the epistles? Oh, what a blessing. Don't you have tumult? Don't you have turmoil? Don't you have anxiety? Don't you have things you severely wrestle with? So did Paul. So did the Thessalonians. Do you think just because Paul was out of there, everything went well? This is a church that's existing in the midst of hostility and turmoil. And Paul says, grace to you. And then peace. Why peace? 
Because Jesus said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. I do not give peace as the world gives. The world gives peace when it's good. When it's bad, all the cards are off the table. Do whatever you want to get where you need to go. God's peace is with you even when things are bad. And he says, be still and know that I'm God. Know my peace. And so what does the Thessalonian church need? Two things. It needs grace and it needs peace. And some encouragement from dad. That's what we're looking at this morning. Not just the salutation, but a genuine call for the sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of their afflictions. They probably knew their need for that. That's my prayer for our church. When I ask God for his manifest presence, I'm asking for his grace and peace to reign among us in spite of our afflictions and the things we're going through. When I'm talking about uh, grace and peace being among us, I'm talking about us operating in that grace and being obedient even if it's difficult. When I'm talking about God's peace being with us, I'm talking about recognizing that God's peace and presence of His Spirit is greater than my anxiety. And if I hang on to my anxiety, I actually make my anxiety an idol. I have to come to the place where Jesus gets above my anxiety. And I'm saying that to an anxious, ridden culture right now. And if you're saying, am I going after something? Yes, I am. All right? And if the shoe fits, wear it. All right? We need the same grace and peace that Paul's talking about here to the Thessalonian church. Paul is reminding them of what they have in Christ. Isn't it amazing how easy that falls off the table? If you were to ask the Northwest right now, we are often reminded of what we have in the Seahawks. Right? And that carries a far more enthusiasm in most places than what we have in Christ. Right? Now, if you're a Cougar fan or a Husky fan, that's a little easier because we've been disappointed a lot, so we kind of know that's tradable. All right? But you get my point? It's really easy to get our ups from the culture, what's going on in the culture, rather than what we have in Christ and treating it as valuable. And what Paul's saying is that what we have in Christ goes far beyond our circumstances or what we are facing. And that's what he's telling the Thessalonian church. All right, so with that background in place, we're going to continue this study next week. I'd like to encourage you, if you get a chance, read through the book. It's a short book, five chapters. Um, It's really good reading, but read through it. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for the courage of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Although we can't walk in their footsteps or see it, we have an accurate report of what happened. And that was a grueling deal. I'm not sure how I would hold up. I'm not sure if I would be able, after being whipped, to be able to walk from Philippi to Thessalonica. And I can only imagine Paul sailing on that boat from Berea down to Corinth or down to Athens and being filled with anxiety over what happened in the church rather than having your peace. And Lord, it's so easy for me to be worried about what's going on in my world that you put me into rather than having your peace. As we look at this book, Lord, instruct us, school us, encourage us, rebuke us, bless us. We ask that it would be a a living engagement with you and we pray this in your name. Amen.